Today's reading is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The word of the Lord. Good morning. (laughs) All right. Welcome. (laughs) Um, We are in the middle of a series of sermons I'm preaching uh, entitled Sacred Pathways, uh, based on the book by Gary Thomas, where we're exploring uh, different ways of thinking about how to love God and to worship him. And so we've uh, walked through the pathways of the naturalist, the sensate, the traditionalist, the ascetic. And today, uh, I want to talk about the activist pathway. Um, Please pray with me. God, thank you for um, your word. And thank you for making each of us uh, as uniquely as you have made us. And that you have provided uh, these different pathways for us to seek your face. So God, in the hearing of your word now, um, help us to listen to your word and for your word and apply them so that we may more faithfully, diligently, and joyfully love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the activist uh, pathway is fittingly more controversial than the other pathways that we have looked at. You may have, when you think about an activist, have images of everything from uh, social justice warriors, civil rights lawyers, marches on Washington, to open-air preachers, to Colin Kaepernick. Depending on which political and theological views you hold, you may find that those who picket abortion clinics and those who march for abortion rights both informed by their Christian faith, to be either courageous or deluded. Activists invite controversy and and make many of us at least a little bit uneasy. But what these different activists share is that they have this firm belief that they serve a God of justice, 
that they serve a God of justice. They understand that the worship and the love of God as standing against evil and calling sinners to repentance. And they are energized by interaction with others, even if that interaction is in conflict. They prefer that over being alone, meditating by themselves or in small groups. They are spiritually nourished through confrontation. And so I want to just remind you that these are folks who are trying to pursue the God of righteousness. Activists, I'm not talking about those who are just um, arguing for the sake of arguing, people who just... um, you know, want to argue about trivial things. So this is talking about those who are seeking to love God uh, because they perceive God uh, as this God of justice and they have this, uh, this kind of a urgency uh, that the God's justice uh, would prevail. Um, well, I don't know, this, this will probably surprise at least some of you. Uh, it surprises me now when I think about it. Um, but when I was in college... Uh, I was quite the uh, activist. Um, it's hard to believe that now, isn't it? Um, I participated in sit-ins, uh, tried to get arrested. I wrote and signed a variety of petitions. I marched against just about everything in those days. Uh, I marched against fraternities as being fundamentally misogynistic. I marched against all sorts of racism Uh, including the lack of minority faculty hiring and the bias against Asian-American student admissions. I sat in against CIA recruiting on campus. I argued for needs-blind admission. I marched for peace and nuclear disarmament. And I would argue with anybody who would have an argument with me. Um, You know, when you're young, it's easier to pick the side because you don't know too much, and you can kind of see everything as black and white. At the time, I was young, I was idealistic, I was naive, uh, and honestly, I didn't have much skin in the game. At least for me, uh, as the song goes, it felt like a game for rich young boys to play, like a series of abstract concerns than anything really concrete or personal in my life. And for a time, I thought political answers, political power, would usher in God's kingdom. Now, I understand, of course, the need for institutional reform, for systematic injustices to be addressed. But I also came to realize that even with the best and most fair systems that we might be able to put into place, the human heart is still prone to evil. I knew that, at least in my own heart, that I would abuse power in the same way as those that I was complaining about, if given the chance. And though external forces might keep me in line, it did not address the fundamental brokenness of my own heart. And so for me, I found that the the interior work that I needed to do and the hearts of individual people uh, is something that I wanted to focus on. That's what really drew me. Um, And I can see now, uh, as I look back on that time, that I was really pursuing uh, avenues and uh, uh, a way of uh, living uh, that was kind of against my own temperament and personality based on these sort of false notions I had and what I was taught about what it meant to be a Christian, as if there was only one particular way uh, that you had to be. 
Um, but we do need activists. We, we need activists in our lives. And in the scriptures, uh, the prophets particularly play this role. Uh, Elijah, for example, mocking the prophets of Baal uh, to a let's see who's God sends fire contest. We see the prophet Nathan calling out King David for his adultery and murder. You are the man accusing him. John the baptizer challenged the crowds. Who told you about the wrath to come and so on? And, and even Moses uh, had this streak in him. Early in his life, he confronted an Egyptian and murdered him because he saw an injustice against his fellow Hebrew slaves. And then he ran away into the land of Midian. And the first thing he does there is fight off some, some shepherds who are harassing these women. And then 40 years later, I think after some maturing and mellowing, God sends him back to Egypt to confront, once again, Pharaoh. Um, and today, we hear about Jesus and about his confrontation with the sellers, with the changers, and the leaders of the temple. Uh, as you know, Jesus is regularly confrontational. He's often debating heatedly with religious leaders. But in this incident, in this moment, he shows a form of anger that is unlike anything else we read about him in the scriptures. And it must have been very, very memorable because it may have been uncharacteristic of him to do something like this because all four gospel writers talk about this incident. Let me give you a little background on, on what's going on here in the Passover. The, where Jesus is, the temple, the temple itself and the altar surrounding it is, is pretty large. Uh, I'm told that it was the size of roughly that of a football field, uh, including the sidelines. So imagine that's, that's just the temple and, and the altar. But the entire premise, including the courts for the Gentiles and the courts for women, because they were not allowed to get onto the uh, temple precinct proper, uh, was much bigger and really dominated the landscape of uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, you can imagine, it's estimated that some 300,000 or so pilgrims would, would come in for the Passover feast for, for the week. So you can imagine that many people, uh, just the noise, all the animals that would be brought in for sacrifice, right? The, the, the money's being changed, all the noise and all the festivities that's going on and, and how, uh, how loud that would have been. And there were, of course, various rules about the kind of animals that you could bring for sacrifice. But the most important thing was that these animals that you brought, everything from a, a pigeon to, uh, to an ox, had to be without any sort of defect. They couldn't have any spots. They couldn't have you know, anything broken or anything like that. And so a lot of times the pilgrims, uh, if they brought an animal, they would have to exchange it because during the travel, you know, maybe it got, you know, broke a leg or something. And so a lot of pilgrims would either um, make that exchange or they would just bring money and purchase an animal because they knew that the animals that were being sold uh, presumably would be uh, without defect. And so naturally, a, a number of uh, you know, business people set up shop to sell these uh, animals. Similarly, uh, male adults were required to pay an annual temple tax. And again, because people are coming from all over the empire with different coins, uh, someone had to make sure that you paid the right amount. And so there were these money changers. And some people didn't want to give money to the temple that had the, um, a, a picture of Caesar, for example. And so they would have to change all their coinage into uh, the temple shekel, which would have been acceptable and standardized. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, this, I know this dates me a little bit, but when I was a kid, uh, I don't think they had these things. They would have these arcades, you know what I'm talking about? where you would go 
and they would have these machines and you'd put your money, your dollar bills, your 20 bills, your uh, quarters, and they would pump out these little tokens that you could then use to play these video games. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe Chuck E. Cheese's is something similar, right? Right, it had, it, like you, it was the only thing that worked on those machines. You had to have those tokens. So it didn't matter if you had $1,000, unless you had those tokens, uh, you, you couldn't play. And so it, it's the same way. People had to come and they essentially had to get these tokens to pay their uh, annual tax. And of course, uh, unlike uh, you know, video arcades, they would charge you for making that exchange for you. And any of you who've traveled anywhere, you know that losing money uh, at the exchange rate is part of the deal of, of, of traveling. So originally, these animal shops and these money changers, these mini banks, were set on the outskirts of the temple areas. Um, but as you know, in real estate, it's all about location. And so over time, slowly, they, they got closer and closer and closer right, to the, to the temple grounds to make it more convenient for people and until they were actually took over the court of the Gentiles. That's where this is happening. They've taken over the, uh, the area that was originally designated for worship uh, in the outer parts of the temple. Um, so Jesus sees all this now. And it can't be the first time that he's seen this. He, as far as we know, he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover every year. In the Gospel of John, he comes at least three times. So he, he must see this every year. But for some reason, this year, he erupts in anger at what he sees. Now, according to the other Gospels, Jesus is outraged because these sellers were taking advantage of the poor. That's why Jesus is so angry. Jesus declares in the other Gospels, referencing Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves or into a den of robbers. So, so he, he's angry because the people have used this time instead of uh, to basically exploit the poor and the vulnerable. That's the cause for his anger and outburst. But, in the Gospel of John, it's different. He sees that in the name of convenience and profit, they've taken over the Gentile area of worship, making it virtually impossible for those folks to worship. And he confronts those who, you know, on the one hand, they were doing, they were providing a service that was an aid or made worship possible. But he says something a little different. He, he's not that concerned in his outburst that they're exploiting the poor. He's angry because they took what was supposed to help people worship and turned it into a business. They turned the temple into a mall. That's his complaint. Fundamentally, he's enraged that they forgot or that they didn't care that this is a place of worship. He shouts, this is my father's house. This is God's house. This is the place where God dwells. And people were acting like they were at a mall instead of in the house of God. That's his complaint. I can tell you that uh, over the years, uh, I have seen plenty of examples of this. Um, 
And in retrospect, I probably should have gotten more angry. Um, I hope none of this is anything from anyone here. Uh, now, I'm not naive to think that everyone comes to church purely to worship God. I, I know there are other reasons. But I have seen from the pulpit, uh, especially during my time as a youth pastor, um, people doing all kinds of things other than worshiping God. I've seen people with their headphones on, I'm guessing listening to music, hopefully not another preacher. I've seen people napping, sometimes sitting in the back with sunglasses on to hide their eyes. Worse, sometimes they'll like sleep like this to look like they're praying. I've seen people zoning out, sipping on their coffee and eating like they're at a show. I've seen people doodling, making shopping lists, doing their school homework, doing their Sunday school homework that they have after the service, reconciling their grocery bills and receipts, checking and writing email, texting, playing video games, keeping an eye on football games and fantasy football stats. I've even had people uh, once... uh, Googling what I was preaching, if I gave an illustration or something, to look up to see if I was right, and then they would send me an email about it right during service. (laughs) Like they couldn't wait until the service was over to tell me in person. I know some people uh, choose churches based on uh, business networks that they might establish that will help them with their careers. Others choose churches because it's a good pool of single men or women that are available to date. I I understand. Uh, Maybe the worst example uh, for me is uh, when I used to work as a junior high youth pastor, I had one student who used to come somewhat irregularly to church. And it it, it puzzled me because um, she came with her grandmother, and her her grandmother came every single Sunday. And so when I asked her about it, She said the reason that she didn't come every Sunday was because her mother sold kimchi that she had made uh, at church on Sundays. And sometimes she had so many orders, there wasn't room for her in the car to bring her to church. And so the selling of those those kimchi jars took precedence over her granddaughter uh, coming to church. I thought, you know, I should have overturned those kimchi jars in the fellowship hall. Uh, instead, my wife and I took the mild step of stop buying kimchi from her, uh, which, was, which we were actually very sad about. Um, but, you know, in our reading today, um, Jesus makes a whip to drive out. I mean, he, he's so enraged that people are not taking worship seriously, right? He, he makes a whip. He drives out the animals along with the people that are responsible Uh, for selling. He overturns the the money changers' tables. He tells them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Stop making my father's house into a shopping center. This this is not, again, Jesus isn't complaining explicitly here about dishonest commerce, even though they were all corrupt, essentially. His wrath is really just directed at those who have turned the worship of God into a merely religious, essentially financial transaction. That's the problem. As if forgiveness, 
as a forgiveness and God can be bought for a couple of doves. If I bring the right coinage, then God has to forgive me. They've turned the worship of God into a business transaction. So Jesus is not saying here, don't sell cookies and t-shirts as a fundraiser on a given Sunday. It's far deeper than that. He's not concerned about what some people think is the dirtiness of money, you know, or a spot on an animal that's being used for, uh, you know, the sacrifice. That's not what he's worried about. He's concerned in the way in which relationship with God has been turned into a business, a manageable transaction. And God is simply reduced to one who buys something from us. Two pigeons for this sin, a goat for a bigger sin, and an ox if you did something really, really bad. Religion turned into a human enterprise, a commercial exchange in which we are in charge and in which we dole out grace. That's the bigger issue that Jesus is in raised about. And frankly, you know, this is, this is our ongoing temptation and problem today. We bring our basic consumer mentality to worship and the spiritual life. We are surrounded by an overwhelming attitude of our culture that we can get what we want if we bring the right coinage. We can buy what we want in stores, and we can buy what we want in the spiritual life. You know, when people move, for example, from town to town, or when students come to campus for the first time, they're, they're looking for a place, a community, a church to worship in. And what do they usually say when they come to visit a church? I'm shopping for a church. I'm church shopping. That's what they say, right? That language betrays our basic disposition. People shop for a church like they're shopping for a new pair of jeans. They're demanding that churches make them feel welcome, give them a good program, a good parking lot, clean bathrooms, and then they will choose that church which caters best to their needs, and they will attend that church for a time when it's convenient until they find something better to do or a church that better meets their needs. And so churches, what do we do? We lean toward these uh, interest-focused programming entertaining the crowds to survive and compete against other churches for these church shoppers. Come to us. Our goods are better. And I have to admit, I've done my share of this selling in the past. And Jesus confronts all of us and he says, get all this out of here. He says, this is my father's house. This is my father's house. This is not a store. This is my father's house. Now, you know, Jesus wasn't the only one who was concerned about the corruption that was going on. There were others. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us a story about others who complained about the, the price gouging that was going on during the period of the Passover. But unlike others who were protesting against a corrupt system, Jesus is angry, not at the system, but because they've desecrated his father's house. It's a more fundamental complaint. And he's making the radical claim here now that this is his father's house. He doesn't say, you have turned the house of God or 
our father's house into a shopping mall. He says, this is my father's house. My father's house. In Luke 2, 49, he made a very similar claim to Joseph and Mary when they found him in Jerusalem. And he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He speaks exclusively of his father because he is making this bold claim now that he is uniquely the only begotten son of God. That, that is a radical claim that he's making here. He's not just a prophet now. He's saying, this is my father's house and you have turned it into a soul. Remember, that the temple is the center of their lives. It's, it's the place of worship, but it's more than that. It's the sign of the covenantal promises of God's eternal presence among his people. And this is where God is permanently dwelling. I mean, literally, they understood God to be here in this place. This is where God is. And how dare you come in here thinking you can just carry on business like it's any other store. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And that is really just just crazy talk, right? Because they, they understood him as speaking literally that this building, which took up to that point another 46 years to rebuild, and they're going to continue to rebuild this thing. Like, how could you possibly rebuild this in three days? His disciples didn't understand either. And it was only later, after the resurrection, that they understood what he meant as they looked back that he was talking about his body as the temple and not this physical temple in Jerusalem. So, you know, if if you want to keep score of what's going on here, as an activist, Jesus loses this round. In his confrontation with the temple leaders, he he lost completely. No one took him seriously. They scoffed at him. They they laughed at him. Yeah, right. Three days. It took 46 years. And you're going to do it in three days. Right. His outburst of anger did nothing. It was a minor disturbance. And the system goes back to the way it was before. Nothing changed. But look what happens later. We're told that the disciples remembered the scriptures. They were later able to interpret Jesus' actions in light of the scriptures. I think this is a good guide for us. We have to interpret our actions and the actions of those who would be activists and other pathways in light of Scripture. For example, the disciples recalled, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, when you hear that, you might interpret that to mean like um, Jesus' passion for God, right, would just, just overwhelm him. Like that, that would be like the thing that's like burning. That's the, that's the motivation of his life. And that's why he did what he did. Uh, and to, certainly that, that's true. But this quote comes from Psalm 69, and it has, a, it has a different meaning. In Psalm 69, the psalmist is suffering, and he's being crushed, and he's lamenting because he's being ridiculed for his faith. Psalm 69, verse 6, it says, It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. 
See, he had zeal for God, for the house of the Lord, and everyone mocked him for it. Like, why are you such a fanatic for God? Why do you care so much about this God? And that's why he's suffering. That zeal that he had for God, he's being destroyed. He's being consumed by that. By others. His love of God leads to ridicule, as it does for Jesus, and eventually to his destruction. So, the quote is not just about having a burning passion for God. It's about suffering ridicule and even death for that passionate faith. It's about confronting others about sin and daring to make the absurd claim that Jesus has been raised from the dead and believing in his name and in his name alone is eternal life. You're going to get ridiculed for that. Because that's a crazy claim. For you to tell someone, you know, obviously not in church probably, but to anyone else, your co-workers, classmates, everybody else, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and in him and in his name only is there eternal life. You're going to get rid of it. There, there's no way around that. If you really believe that, and if you make that confession, you will suffer insults and ridicule. Now, I'm not telling you that to seek uh, suffering uh, as an end or anything like that, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, when we make the claims that we make, it's inevitable. And I think this, is a, this tells us that this is what's going to happen. That we will suffer insults and ridicule. And, and that's part of what it means for us to have zeal for God. Now, we need to interpret Jesus' actions and those of others in light of Scripture. But even more importantly, we need to interpret them in the light of the resurrection. Verse 22, When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples made sense of everything that they didn't understand at the time when they looked back in light of the resurrection. They were able to interpret Jesus' actions, which they found confusing when they looked back to a time when, when, he was, when we just lost the argument at the temple when they looked back through the lens of the resurrection, what looked like defeat was in fact a victory. They had no idea what was going on at the time. But once they understood the resurrection, once they experienced that, it made sense of everything else. Right? Because when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and then I will raise it up in three days, and he's talking about the, the physical temple, that, that's crazy, Right? But now when he says, no, no, I meant my body, I'm going to raise my dead body. After I'm dead, I'm going to bring it back to life. Three days. Like, that's even crazier. Right? Imagine if somebody just off the street, uncredentialed, someone we don't know, walks in here, creates a ruckus, overturns this table, right? And says some enigmatic or mysterious words, threatening potentially words. How would we respond? We'd either be scared and call 911, or we just laugh at him. What are you talking about? On that day, Jesus looked foolish. There was no point in arguing with him further because there was no way for him to back up his words. It's only again in hindsight, as they look back to the time in light of the resurrection, 
that it made sense. Destroy this temple. And look what he says. He says, I will raise it up in three days. That's a very unusual phrasing. Because usually when we talk about the resurrection, it's almost always in what, uh, what they call the divine passive. He has been raised, or Jesus was raised, right? And with the implication that the raising was done by God. Jesus was raised. The implication being God raised him. But look what he does here. He says, I will raise myself. So now it's even, even crazier. Not only is the temple his father's house, he himself will now do what only God can do. That is to raise the dead to eternal life. No wonder, you know, they completely dismissed him. And again, only in light of the resurrection does any of this make sense. And I think this is what this means for us. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that he is the new temple of God that has been raised from the dead. And that therefore, the entire system of animal sacrifice is no longer necessary, along with the whole temple structure. Hebrews 10 reminds us and insists that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is only through Jesus who offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, once and for all and completed. The prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and others, Amos, they attacked the system for its corruption and called for reformation and for repentance. They told people that God did not want these ritual sacrifices, rather that God wanted justice for the poor and for an unshakable trust in Him. But Jesus is not trying to reform the system. Even though this text is usually called the cleansing of the temple, He's not cleaning it. He's shutting it down. He's dismantling the entire system. He is replacing the physical temple with the temple of His body. The temple is not necessary because God is no longer dwelling in this particular space. God's dwelling place is not a temple or in a particular location. God's presence now is relocated into a person, into the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus will tell the Samaritan woman a couple chapters later at the well that the time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will not worship in a particular place on this mountain or that mountain, but they will worship in the spirit and the truth. They will worship Jesus. So, you know, so this means that not only are we adopted into the family of God, not only are we the, the sons and daughters of God, but in Christ, we have the very presence of God in us. Paul will talk later about that. You know, we, the church, we are the body of Christ. So if, if Christ, in his resurrected body, he's the temple, meaning that the, this is where God is, and now we also are the body of Christ, then we too have the indwelling of God, right? The Holy Spirit lives in us. Do you not know that the Spirit of God lives in you? It's, it's not a place, the temple, where God is. It's us now. Because God dwells with his people and the presence of God is in Jesus. 
And so we offer up our lives then, not as an animal sacrifice, but as Paul says, as living sacrifices. That's good news. That's why you and I didn't have to bring a sheep today, or pigeons. And that's worth proclaiming and receiving some ridicule. The resurrection is what gives us hope and it what gives us courage to confront the world. Remember, the, John's gospel was written after the temple was actually destroyed. And so the Christians now hearing John's gospel for the first time, you know, these are folks scattered throughout the empire. Maybe they've been kicked out of the synagogues because they, they believe in this Jesus. Um, they can't go back to the temple for, for Passover. Um, and John's telling them, listen, it's, it's fine. You don't need a temple. You don't need the temple. You can have hope and you can have courage because God's mercy is not found in those sacrifices that you do at the temple during Passover. You have Christ. You have Christ. You have the presence of God dwelling in your midst for whenever two or three are gathered in His name, He is there. He is present with us now. And John is telling them, and he's telling us, Jesus is enough. He's enough. And so our gathering together today, it is certainly to encounter God, to be reminded, to be strengthened, to go out into the world, to confront the world, to bear witness to the world of what God has done in Jesus Christ. I was reminded this week um, from another pastor Something that C.S. Lewis says um, in his uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, You might recall in in those books, these kids travel to this uh, fantasy world of Narnia where they meet Aslan, the great lion, who's a Christ figure in in that world. And in the first three books, four kids from the same family travel. Um, And at the end of the the second book, I think, two of the kids, uh, that's their last trip, And in the third book, the two youngest kids, this is their last trip. Um, And so uh, Lucy and Edmund, the the two youngest, are told by Aslan at the end of the third book, you're not going to come back to Narnia anymore. And and Lucy, she's the youngest, she's the most spiritually sensitive, she's completely distraught, like, oh my gosh, she she wants to come back, she wants to visit Aslan, she's going to miss him so much. And and this is how uh, Lewis um, plays plays that scene out. So Lucy says, it isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy, it's you. We shan't meet you there, meaning uh, the, the regular world. How can we live never meeting you? Aslan says, but you shall meet me, dear one. And then Edmund says, are, are you there too, sir? I am, said Aslan. But there, I have a different name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia. That by knowing me here a little, you may know me better there. Isn't that great? The reason the kids were brought to Narnia was so that they could encounter Aslan in in that world to get to know him so that when they return to the regular world, they would recognize Aslan in their world. Right? Know me a little here so that you can know me better there. 
I think that's a great vision of what we're trying to do with worship. Hopefully, it's a little easier to experience the presence of God together as we gather for worship in the hearing of the word, in praise and prayer, in the communion, in the word of blessing, in our fellowship. We can remind each other of the scriptures and to interpret all the world and all the actions of the world and our own actions in light of the resurrection. And then, and then, we go back out into the world to confront the world with the good news, to know God better during the week at work and at school and at home because you have gotten to know God a little better here. So go now from this place in the strength of God, in the peace of God, and in the power of God to bear the ridicule of the world for your love of Jesus Christ and remember the resurrection. Remember that Jesus Christ is the presence of God whom you have come to know and speak with joy and with firmness and confront the world and proclaim this truth and the hope that you have that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we are thankful for this particular body of believers that have gathered here. Would you give us a love for you that consumes us? And in that love, give us the courage and the hope, the joy proclaim your word wherever you send us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.